Folks, a very warm welcome to our latest Generation podcast. It's been a while. Um, it's been a few weeks, actually, since we've had a podcast. We're doing some work on the website, but we are back, and we are back with a bang. Um, let me introduce my guest today. is Dr. Riaz Mohammed. Uh, Riaz, good to have you with us. Tell us where are you speaking to us from today? Thank you very much for having me. I really much appreciate it. I'm actually speaking to you from a very capital city of Scotland. I live in Edinburgh now, and that's where I'm speaking from. That, that's great. I mean, um, I'm from the Glasgow area. That's that's not an Edinburgh accent. I mean, you look kind of South Asian, but you don't sound South Asian. In fact, you've got what I used to call a Glasgow University accent. You're, you're very clever. I'd, uh, well, just shows you, uh, because I lived most of my life in Glasgow, came through Glasgow University, studying medicine, went to the schools, etc. in Glasgow. So really, I'm a Glass region more than I am anything else, I have to say, having lived most of my life in Glasgow. Um, but as you know, I'm still considered a foreigner, even though uh, even though I've been in Scotland since 16 years of age. I'm now 71. If you do the mathematics, yeah. <laughs> I've been there a long time. For our, our listeners um, and for our, our viewers, in fact, if you can see this, this is uh, Riazi's book. Um, it's called What's Up, Dog? A Surgeon's Story. It's a really great book. This is what alerted me to Riazi's existence, and, and I read it and couldn't put it down. So this is his story, um, if you love a story. So, so Riaz, tell us a little bit about your story. Let's start at the beginning. A good um, nosy question. Where are you from? Right, good question. I'm from a little village called Gujarat, um, which is in the district of Gujarat. In, in those days, it was called West Pakistan, and that's where, where I was born. Uh, and um, so I'm from Pakistan, and till the age of about six, we more or less lived in that village where my grandfather from my father's side was a farmer. Uh, and um, but of course my mother wasn't too happy with us living in Gujarat uh, because it was a wee bit uh, <laughs> distance from Lahore where her father lived, and of course Lahore was a big city. And my grandfather from my mother's side was in fact a very uh, intellectual person. He was uh, a headmaster of a college in Lahore and actually spoke English very well. And very well educated. And it's quite interesting. My mother said to me she just loved education. She wanted all the children to be educated. Unfortunately, when she became a bit older, her father would not let her be educated any further, even though she begged for it <laughs> because she was a woman. Her place was in the kitchen in Pakistan. And so though all her brothers, my uncles, went to university, would you believe, which is unusual for people in Pakistan. She was not allowed to go into almost secondary school. Uh, so that was a bit of a shame for her. Um, so that, that's my kind of background. One side, very much practical uh, fishing, uh, you know, side. And the other's educational um, side of uh, life, really. And uh, I'm not sure who I got all my genes from, but there we are. The Lord knows. So uh, was that a rural environment? Very much so, yeah, in the middle of nowhere, really. Uh, and I think that's the reason why my mother wasn't too happy for us to stay there, because there was no better school education or whatever. Uh, so she wanted to move um, either to 
Lahore or uh, other places, Bahawalpur, where my father had a, a book, had a shop, etc. A bit more city-like. Right. Then at the age of six, without discussing it with me, they decided they will move to the UK. Would you believe emigrate to uh, the UK? I couldn't believe it. It was quite interesting. My grandfather and my father's side seemed to be very disappointed. All oh, the boys are going away from me. Whereas my uh, other grandfather, who was educated, he was very supportive. He thought going to the UK was a good idea, give all the children better chance of life, etc. Uh, and so he was quite happy for us to go to the UK. So, right, so your, your, your parents were quite aspirational. They did want a better future for you. Or, oh, were they ambitious themselves? Well, the di difficulty I have is that, as I said, my mother wasn't very well educated, although she was very intelligent and, you know, uh, very keen on education. My father was, was he a businessman? By jinx, he was a businessman, all right. He'd had all kinds of ideas. And he went to uh, Glasgow, uh, and left us back home for two or three years while he worked away at various things. He wasn't educated, so he worked on the roads, would you believe, uh, and got money and bought a house and called us over. Then he started a business um, going in the, uh, all the way to Pakistan, would you believe, in, in, a, in a van or whatever, and brought back cloth and whatever to be um, made into clothes and and um, kind of sold in Europe. And a number of his family, friends and cousins and whatever, they came and actually lived in France and uh, Belgium or various other places in the UK. Right. And so he did all that. It was absolutely amazing. So and he finally, I understand, sorry to interrupt, finally he ended up going to live in Lahore and started a factory selling wonderful things to the army because he used to be in the army in the old days. And he was a partner, so I'm told, became a rupee millionaire. Um, so not that I saw any rupees, <laughs> never mind. He did really very well. So, yeah, he was very, very entrepreneurial. That's great. So you arrived in Glasgow. Was that in the 60s? Oh, it would be 1956 or thereabouts. Okay, mid-50s. Mid um, an Asian yeah. family landing in Glasgow. Tell me about these early months. The early months were very, very difficult. Um, we started off very well. We went to a place called Monteith Row, which faces uh, Glasgow Green, uh, which I, I understand used to be a very, very good um, street many, many years ago. But by the time we were there, it was a, a bit poor in, in um, the east end of uh, Glasgow. We were delighted. Oh, we've got, a, we've got a house. We've got a house. My father never had a house before. Uh, it was, of course, uh, you know, people above you, whatever, but we had a house. It was just wonderful. So the first few uh, days and weeks were quite good. And then we had to go to school, of course, because I was now six and a half or whatever it was. And we had to go to local primary school because, you know, you, we didn't know anything about private schools in those days. So off we went to the local school, and that proved to be very, very difficult. Did you me. speak English at that point? I did not speak any language apart from Urdu. I didn't know English at all. And so you can imagine going to a place where everyone speaks, uh, obviously, English, with a Scottish accent, of course, um, and I, I don't know what they're saying. Uh, and only later I discovered when I learned the language, some of them were, of course, making fun of you, calling you names and calling you 
um, in a way that wouldn't would be disgraceful. Was the community diverse in those days? We talk about diversity, or were you the only, as they say these days, person of colour in the school? Yeah, we were the only ones there uh, because in the 1950s, not many people from Asia had emigrated, I don't think, not to Glasgow anyway. Um, so the only Asian people in my school would be myself, my elder brother and my younger brother, three of us. The fourth brother that uh, we had was too young. He hasn't started school yet. The three of us. And uh, as you know, my book tells you on the first, very first day, it was utterly amazing. Uh, we were, the bell went, oh, you go out to the... A playground and have a, a little time there. And we went to the playground and suddenly the three of us were standing in the middle of the playground with all the other children running round and round and round about us. As I often say, it was the, you know, the cowboys going around the Indians for a change, as it were. Um, but I found that absolutely terrifying. And nobody did anything. No teacher came out. They all shouted and screamed, etc. What a start that was. I had actually been to um, P1 in Pakistan, totally different story altogether. So would you describe it as pure naked racism? I, I, don't, I don't want to call it that because, um, you know, young children is just young children. Here's people who look different and don't speak. You say hello and they don't know what you're saying. Uh, so you, you jump about and shout and scream at them and all your friends do the same. So I'm sure there was a bit of racism there somewhere, you, but I, I wouldn't call it that. You did well in school. You 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 became ducks and the normal circumstances, you were tipped to be school captain, but you didn't get that. Why do you think that was the case? Well, I, I think it's quite simply the, the colour of my skin and uh, the headmaster... I understand. I'm, you know, when you're when you're in secondary school, um, you know some things, but you don't know everything. And some, many of the teachers said, "Oh, Riaz, he should be captain, no question about it." But the head teachers said, "No, we're not ready for that." You know, he can be a vice captain, but he can't be the captain of the school. And the reason for that, I think, is none other than my ethnicity. I think that that was the reason. Okay, as far as uh, I know, from Pakistan, um, there's. Pakistan, the two major religions, of course, are dominated by Islam and Christianity. What was your upbringing? I was brought up in a very godly um, Muslim home. My mother was a very, very godly person, and it taught us uh, to be godly as well. I mean, I can tell you right now, la ilaha illallah Muhammadun Rasulullah. That says the very basic of uh, Islam, and I don't honestly remember when I was taught that. I must have been taught that before I could even speak, as it were. And so we brought up in a Muslim home. My parents were very reasonable. My my mother taught me that every religion was worth respecting, but Islam was the best, and I should follow Islam. So that's the kind of position I was in all my childhood and teenage years. Of course, you, I think you quoted the great Islamic thing there is but one God called Allah and Muhammad is the prophet of Allah, which okay. is the, the, the major tenet of the Islamic faith. Okay, so you, you're brought up uh, a Muslim and, of course, there's a lot of rules, regulations, five times a day prayer, uh, Ramadan, which... Incidentally, this is Eid. We're recording this on the last day of Ramadan. I'm really before we move on to some other stuff. You're not a Muslim anymore. You're a Christian. I think 
There's a couple of things culminating maybe in an event in Golgsby, but some stuff that led up to this. So tell us just briefly how you became a Christian. Well, you can understand that if you're living in a Christian country, uh, there'll be many, many Christians there. I didn't know any difference between nominal Christianity and true, genuine, born-again Christianity. That meant nothing to me. And the reason why I thought more about Christianity was because a Church of Scotland minister actually came to our primary school before we left to go to secondary school and encouraged us to go to the Boys' Brigade. And the reason I asked my mother if I could go to the Boys' Brigade on a Friday, if Friday is a holy day for Islam, and to my surprise, she said, yes, you can go because they do a lot of uh, football and uh, sports and whatever. And I thought, well, that'd be very good. Plus, I'll get to know maybe the boys now that I know English better, and that'd be quite good. And, of course, they were uh, supposed to be Christians, but I found it very, very disappointing. Uh, I found it that, for example, the young boys were 16, 17 years of age at that time, or they're about started to smoke started to drink alcohol, uh, and the insolently uh, they were to the older um, leaders was just absolutely ridiculous. I couldn't believe it. Well, that's uh, Bridgeton for you, but anyway, that's by the way. So the, here we are, and I thought, well, Christianity might be fine, but as my mother says, yeah, stick to Islam. It's a better religion because, honestly, I never did any of these things. I didn't uh, drink alcohol or do anything like that at all. And there's only, as you mentioned, um, we went to Gospel High School for a school holiday, uh, and I'm really very thankful to my mother. She, we were very poor, I have to tell you, and she must have, you know, made sacrifices because I'd become ducks of the school and all this kind of stuff, and I was on TV and on radio broadcast and everything throughout the whole of the Commonwealth, <laughs> which was utterly amazing. So I think as a re uh, reward to me, she gave me a two-week holiday in the school camp at Gospel High School. And there I met uh, a young man who was a, a student, an art student. And um, he was a former pupil of the school, but he came with his own course at his own time to help out as a leader uh, to the young children. And um, I, there was something different about him. I remember, remember this, I'll tell you this, to summarize it, he walked with God and God walked with him. And he said to me, Riaz, I'm a born-again Christian. Didn't mean anything to me. I knew nothing about theology or about Christianity. I just knew everybody was a Christian if you're born in the UK, apart from people like me. But he had something I didn't have. He had a walk with God. And he was only there for one week in God's providence. He had to go away after that. He would never come back again. This was his last time because he had to do other things as a student and whatever. But he said something to me that I remembered. He left and said, Riaz, I want to tell you one thing before I go. What's that? I said to him. And he said, I'll be praying for you. And off he went. And I couldn't believe it. Nobody ever in 16 and a half years of my life had ever said to me that they would pray for me. And so that meant a lot to me. And as a consequence of that, my mind began to think about what does all this mean? And do I have the time, time to tell you what happened after that? Or do you want to go you on? You absolutely. Tell us how you... Well, this was the second week now. We're in the second week of my holiday, second Thursday. And I'm lying in my camp bed, having had a terrible day, people shouting at you, calling you names or whatever. Also, 
Uh, although not so I can hear them because I was punching them in the face. I did that at that time. But behind your back, they're shouting or whatever. It was a terrible day. And I woke up and suddenly I found myself in the presence of the living God. And it, immediately I broke down in tears. My heart broke. I was an utter sinful person in the sight of a holy God. I'm not saying for a second, oh, I don't smoke and I don't do, oh, rubbish. Uh, I wish I could die. I was just so terrible. I honestly, I've said this many, many times before. I wish the ground would open up and swallow me and hide me from the presence of this holy God for the first time I'd met him. And then, and I've actually spoken to a consultant psychiatrist who asked me about all these things, which you believe when I became a medical student. I knew that this God was none other than Jesus Christ himself. And he said to me something that I just couldn't believe. He waved to me, said, Riaz, come, follow me. I couldn't believe it. And as a consequence of that, I said a prayer, which I didn't know Christians used, because nobody had taught me that, and I never heard anything. What I said was simply this, um, Jesus, come into my heart. From this day, I will follow you no matter what. And that's why I say that night, I became a Christian. Now, I knew nothing about theology. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot to learn, but I knew nothing about theology. But the thing that was really important to me was that Christ was not condemning me. I was condemning myself. He wanted me to join him, and that was just so, so that wonderful. wonderful. Now, it wasn't long before you you knew that Christians had their holy book, and it was called the Bible. Um, tell, tell the folk how... You got hold of a Bible and how you started reading it. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I knew about the Bible away from the beginning, of course, and going to the Boys Brigade as well, knew about the Bible, how they ever read it. Although I think in one meeting of the Boys Brigade from Glasgow, all the boys got together. I was asked to had to read a bit in the Church of Scotland, which you believe. That's about all I knew about. And then Bible. Yes, I remembered. About three and a half, four years ago, a people called the Gideons had come to our secondary school and had offered um, New Testament and Psalms or Psalm and New Testament thing free of charge to everyone who wanted it. And, of course, being brought up in Glasgow, free of charge. Come on, I'm going to take it. So I took this Bible and I put it away somewhere. And for four years, I never touched it, never read it, didn't even know it was there. And when the Holy Spirit, now I know, began to speak in my mind, it said to me, Read the Bible. Read the Bible. Because I didn't tell anybody of my experience. I just kept it totally to myself. So I said, Bible, oh, yeah. I looked in my books and found it. And I began to read. And I began to read for hours at a time. And I read, and tears running down my eye. Honestly, my heart broken. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I couldn't believe it. And when I read more and more, oh, this is fantastic. The miracles he did, whatever. And then I couldn't believe, honestly, I just could not believe when I read, turned the page over and said, they crucified him. I couldn't believe it. They crucified Jesus Christ, who was such a wonderful person, did nothing wrong. And then I couldn't believe it. Tears running down my face. I read for the first time, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Couldn't believe it. Sorry for being so emotional. Even now, it, it speaks to me. 
and then and he's buried, he's dead. And then I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe it. I wrote over the page and said, why seek ye the living amongst the dead? He's not here. He's risen. And, I, and I, of course, I, I believed it immediately. Of course he was risen. I met him in Gospel High School many, many months ago. And it was just absolutely wonderful to read the Word of God. And I found that the Christ that I'd met in Gospel High School was the Christ I met again when I read uh, the basically the New Testament and Psalms. That's all I had. I got the Old Testament later on, but that's how it happened to me. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. How, how, I mean, growing up, you may have had a consciousness of God uh, and a sense that Allah w was there. W was this the same God that you met in Golgspe, or would you say God was speaking to you early? I mean, folk very often ask, the Christians and Muslims, you know, worship the same God. Yeah, and of course, the answer is theologically absolutely not. Yes, but but, but you know, because they're, they're completely different entities. But what was your experience? Uh, well, I think from my perspective, uh, Allah was a God that I knew, but I did not love because I didn't know Him well enough. Whereas, and uh, the God that revealed Himself to me. I loved him with my life because he loved me. And he and had I a think, relationship. Isn't that the difference? Yes, there's, there's a love there. There's a love with God and God loves you. And that relationship, like father and son, as it were, and I've got a boy of my own. I know what that means. I give my life for him because I love him so much. My daughter as well, same thing. Yeah, that, that I didn't have that um, in the past as a Muslim. Um, same God, yeah, if you like. But the way that you relate to him, the way he relates to you, I think is so much more deeper and more wonderful, as the Bible describes it, than Allah. Because in the end of the day, Allah does not speak to mankind, apart from through angels or whatever, to a prophet. He doesn't personally speak himself. And yet the Bible says quite clearly, God loved us so much that he allowed himself, if you like, to become and we don't understand all that. And I know Muslims have great difficulty with this as well. He became a human being. How could God become a human being? But God can do anything and everything. Okay. He became a human being so that he could touch you, so that he could speak to you, he could hear, have your experience, and then die on the cross for you. That You don't find that in Islam. In fact, you find the very opposite because... As you know, uh, the Quran says quite clearly, Jesus Christ was not crucified on the cross. Uh, he, uh, people were led to believe or blindfolded, so they thought they were doing it, but they weren't doing it. And Jesus didn't die on the cross. He was taken straight to heaven, which, of course, and somebody else was maybe crucified in his place. So the substitute <laughs> has a substitute and goes away. It doesn't make any sense to me. And the, the other thing that I, I would add my... Uh, Muslim friends to consider, can God do this? Of course he can. He could do anything. He could blind everybody, and he could have done that, no question. But the God that I know is a God of truth, the God who does what is right. Why would he hide this truth for 600 years before revealing it to mankind uh, without any evidence because someone said this is what happened, uh, despite all the evidence we have. So I can truly, if God allows me, look him in the face and say, I've looked at the evidence. I see what a human mind and brain can do. What else can I do? I've got to go with that which is most 
reasonable and sensible than something which is totally uh, contrary to God's nature of truthfulness. And I'm sorry, I don't want to insult Islam in any way, but I have to speak what I feel is the truth. Yeah, no, that's right. Now, if you, what advice would you give to people? See, I mean, there are, I think, a million Muslims now, uh, over a million in the UK. Islam is big. We meet folk all the time, and, yeah. you know, they're just great people. But yeah. what advice would you give to someone? Um, the word we use is witnessing to a Muslim. If you met the 17 year old Muhammad, you know, Riaz Muhammad, just give us some pointers as to how to share the gospel with Muslims. Well, I think um, my experience is only my experience, so you have to take that into account. I met a Christian who loved me, who cared for me, who treated me in a way that was totally respectful as he treated everyone else. It doesn't matter the color of my skin. It didn't matter that I followed a different religion, whatever, he loved me as a human being. Uh, and that, I think, is utterly important. Show kindness and love to your Muslim friends. Don't call them names. Uh, don't think they're, they're, they're only here to get money and nothing else. No, they're living as God and his providence has brought them. So first of all, show them love and care. Uh, and be respectful because, you know, at the moment, um, Ramadan is just finished. Now, during Ramadan, you wouldn't invite uh, a Muslim to come and eat food, etc. That's that's not fair. <laughs> You've got to be uh, reasonable and faithful uh, to that. So respect the religion, know what they teach. But when you do get the opportunity, uh, tell them in a courteous, kind, and and you know, in a way, what you believe and why you believe it. Not because you want to get rid of all the other religions in the world, but simply because you put your trust in the Bible. Uh, and if they would read the Bible, they'll understand why, uh, you know, I believe what I believe. So please uh, help them read the Bible. If they don't want to read it, that's their choice. If they want to put it in the bin, that's their choice. But my view would be love your Muslim neighbors and friends, show them kindness and be respectful. And if possible, <laughs> say to them, here, read uh, the Bible in a language you can understand because there's no problem. It doesn't need to be Greek or Latin. It can be in English or Urdu or whatever. Read it and see what it says and make up your own mind as to which way to go. That's really helpful. I mean, I think a lot of Christians start with polemic. You know, the, their opening line is an argument, um, you know, the, you know, and, and that's probably not the best way to come. That may come later in, in discussion, but not your opening line. Now, so there's a poor boy in Gujarat, Pakistan. He ends in, you say, Bridgeton. Others would say Brighton in, in <laughs> Glasgow. Um, you you end up in Glasgow University. Okay, it's not Strathclyde. It's the second best university in Glasgow. But you get there and you train to be a doctor. Um, tell me what your motivation was in studying medicine. Well, it goes back to my childhood again because uh, – I'm sorry to mention my book again, but I've told the story there so people know this. I saw a young – well, I didn't see personally, but a young boy drowned in Pakistan in Gujarat going after a cow or something. And he was dragged out by my uncle and other people and lay on on the floor and nobody was knew what to do. And I, as a maybe five and a half, six-year-old boy, watching all this happening, um, saw the mother coming 
and uh, um, she didn't know what to do either. They all, what do we do? He's lying on the on the ground. And then finally, somebody came on a bicycle. Finally, I don't know how long it took. Uh, some kind of health worker, and he had a stethoscope. Listened to the heart and said, "No, he's dead. Nothing can be done." And the mother began to absolutely cry. Pulled out her hair. Her daughters were crying as well. And then I saw tears running down my eyes as well. And I said, "Wait, this is ridiculous. Why was there no one there to help him?" And I knew what a doctor was. I said, "Why was there not a doctor to help this man?" And that day, I decided that I will become a doctor, so that I can help people. So, that, <laughs> so that's why the medicine was a thing. I, I had no other uh, thoughts of doing anything else. Medicine was to be my life, and that's the way it happened. So, so why, you know, at the end of your course, you can go into medicine, you go into surgery. Why? What made you do surgery? Uh, well, I tried various uh, things because, as you know, when you do, well, you may, some people might not know, when you do medicine, you get MBCHV, which is a general thing. You learn everything, bit of skin, bit of orthopedics, bit of this, that, and urology. You le learn uh, all kinds of things. Uh, and to me, general surgery, which was the most competitive, seemed the best. You had more, uh, for example, I thought about orthopedics, but you're only dealing with bones. Uh, that's all you're doing. Whereas you can speak to people, you can do esophagus, stomach, you can do colon, you can do all kinds of gallbladder, you do all kinds of things in general surgery. So I thought general surgery, even though it was the most competitive at that time, you know, to go into, I decided, yeah, that, that's that's where I'm going to go. Uh, and um, yeah, the, that's a reason. Now, to, to cut a, a long story short, um, you you were a successful surgeon. You became a consultant. You were really happy doing that. Yeah. Like like all careers, you know, some jobs you applied for you didn't get, others you get. There's, you know, careers are like snakes and ladders. I don't know, you go up and then down. But there was a big blow, wasn't it? The, uh, it was discovered that you had hepatitis. Uh, you had to give up practicing surgery. As a, as a Christian at, at that point, that must have been a major blow. How did you handle that? Um, yeah, that, that is a crucial point in my life, I have to say. After many years of hard work, I was you know, chief consultant surgeon in uh, Fife, in fact, clinical director and all this. I was invited then, more or less, to come to, back to Glasgow which is quite interesting, Victoria Infirmary, the consultant layer, because I was doing esophageal cancer and that's a difficult thing. But anyway, that's maybe too much of detail. So we decided um, to, and it's funny how it happened. My wife, Janet, is a, is a Scottish girl. Um, six months before anything happened, she said to me, Riaz, I think we should go to Glasgow. I said, what? Glasgow, I'm the chief here, I'm clinical director, everything's fine. All my children are going to university. I want to go back to Glasgow. And I can't go back to Glasgow. Can't get a job there. Six months before it all happened. And lo and behold, next day, um, this job comes up in Victoria Infirmary. They're looking for a, a senior consultant to do software surgery or whatever. And lo long story short, I actually got the job. So, uh, and of course, I had to write uh, to Fife Health Board, tell them, I'm sorry, I'm resigning. My post as consultant, I've got to go there. Uh, there are various reasons for that. And they were very, very supportive. And I was so sorry to see you leave. But we can understand your career uh, will develop. I'm now about 50, 51 years of age. 
maybe another nine, ten years at least to go. And, you know, going to a teaching hospital, doing more might be best for you. Uh, and it's all worked out very well. So I resigned. Uh, and that same day, I wrote back to Glasgow and said, I'll accept their uh, post and put them both. I wanted to be absolutely kind and truthful to everybody. And that day, after having posted the letters, I got a phone call at home uh, from one of the doctors in Fife saying, Riaz, I think there's a problem. Uh, what is it? I think it's this hepatitis business. Oh, how could that be? Uh, so it can't be anything to do with you, Riaz, because you've got a certificate saying that you've been immunised and that you don't need to be tested again. Everything's fine. So it couldn't be one of your patients, but it couldn't be you. But cut a long story short, uh, it turned out, uh, despite everything, it was me. I did have hepatitis B. Uh, and But I'm leaving Fife, where they wanted me to stay, <laughs> and I've resigned. I'm going to Glasgow and, and that very same day. So you're off the payroll, essentially. Uh, more or less. I've had it. Uh, would I, would I, I'd sold my house and I'd bought another one in Glasgow, at Newton Mearns. Uh, would I be homeless? I'm going to pay... You know, all that happened at the one time. Uh, and, and But to praise God, the people in the um, board of uh, Victoria South Glasgow University Trust, they were very, very kind. And they said, no, no, you just carry on, do what you can. Uh, and, and they paid me. And that's what I did for, in the end of the day, for a whole year, I worked in endoscopy, did clinics, all the kind of thing that didn't need operations. Uh, and that was really, that was fine. I, and... Teaching hospital, I was asked to, to teach, so I became the main teacher, etc. And um, that was just very wonderful. But I couldn't go on because I wasn't operating. Uh, well, how could it be a surgeon? When I saw somebody who needed a bowel tumour or whatever, I couldn't do it. I had to go to someone else and say, could you do this patient for me? I can't operate. I couldn't go on like that. So I had and to well, well, did you have a, Did you have a, um, a controversy with God at the time? Were you angry with God? How no, I, I wasn't, but I must say I just carried on as normal. And to cut a long story short, second year uh, in Victoria, I decided I need to leave surgery. How do I do anything? Only job that came up in London. So I, I was actually appointed to the Ombudsman in London, which did the whole of the UK in those days. And uh, so I went there part-time and I got 40% of my salary, which I then gave back to the NHS because I couldn't take it all. That wasn't very fair. They gave me two days to go to London. I did that for a year. And here I am, and this is a honestly truthful, standing in the underground, going to Heathrow to get the you know aeroplane back to Glasgow. And of course, I couldn't get a seat because they were all full. And I'm standing there uh, waiting. To go, and I said to God, uh, God, why has this happened to me? After years of training as a consultant surgeon, blah, 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 here I am doing going back to forth to London uh, to do some, why does that happen to me? And I got an answer from God straight in my mind, which I'll never forget. And what the answer was simply this, his answer was a question to my question. Why has this happened to me? He said to me, Riaz, do you trust me or not? And I immediately said, I'm sorry, Lord, of course I trust you. End of story. Uh, so that's how I handled it. it. It was God's will. That's what he'll do. And very soon thereafter, would you believe, uh, um, a senior medical uh, dental defense unit of Scotland job came up in Glasgow. Would you believe? Hey, that's wonderful. Not London anymore. And I thought that was it. I had to go for that. And there's a big story behind that as well. 
So that's how I handled it. Not that I knew all the answers of why it happened. In many ways, I still don't. But what I do know is this. You either trust God to make your life go the way he wants it to go or the way you want it to go. God was more important to me than surgery. And I followed him. So that, that's how I handled it. And, yeah, and God was absolutely, absolutely gracious to me. I got a great job for 10 years or so. And when I retired, when I said, oh, I have it enough, MDDS, I'm going to retire now. But the, instead of patients that I was looking after, there's other doctors I was looking after for 10 years or so. So that's all. They became my patients. That was quite interesting. And so I, I kind of retired and said, oh, that's it, I'm not going. I had to give them six months' notice, and they came back to me and said, oh, we don't want you to go just yet. Oh, why not? Why can't you not just do part-time for so, – and that would be good for you too. So, okay. So I worked three days a week, and gradually, after two years, uh, I came down altogether. Yeah. And that was just wonderful. Plus, it gave me another pension from MDS as well, of course. So <laughs> God knows everything. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, do you find it easy to talk about your faith to non-believers? I have no difficulty. I probably talk too much. Uh, I have the reason why I wrote the book uh, that you mentioned was because uh, you know I've been invited to a number of different churches of different denominations, and more more or less, many many people um, want to hear my story for some reason. Uh, but that seems to be more interesting to them than me doing theological <laughs> arguments or whatever. And as a consequence of that, a number of people came to me afterwards and said, oh, Riaz, we'd love to hear more of you. So you don't get the full time, of course. You, know, you don't have time to tell the, all the story. And so we'd like to hear more of your story. And so many people said to me that, and I thought, well, I'd better do something about it. And that's why I wrote the book, so that my story could be read by people in their own time and their own way. So, yeah, I've had tremendous opportunity, privileges. And today, um, very kindly, I've been asked to help you in the podcast so I can speak about it. So that's what God has done for me. It's just been absolutely wonderful. So I'm happy to talk about uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to point to him. If you don't want to know about Christ, don't bother asking me because that's what you're going to get. Um, so I don't want anything to look at him, how important he is, God forbid, nothing to do with that. I just want to point everyone to the Lord Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. He's the one who deserve all the praise and glory and honor. That's well, that, that's a great way to come to an end. Our 40 minutes is almost up. So just uh, what's up, Doc? A surgeon's story. Riaz, can you tell our listeners and our viewers how they can get a hold of this book, which is a really great read. It's only like uh, 163 pages. You can read it in two hours. Thank you very much. Well, it was published by Westport Press in America, but you can get it from Westport Press, and they put it on Amazon. You can get it from Amazon, both as a uh, as a book or an audio form or uh, the electronic form, as they call it. I don't know what they call it now. You know what I mean. It's cheaper to buy an electronic form. Kindle, yeah. You can get it from there. Or in Scotland now, John Ritchie Limited and Kilmarnock have very kindly taken it on and put it on their website and whatever else and selling it as well. So you can go to them uh, if that is convenient. Uh, and a number of friends and people that have written to me personally wanting me to post it to them. So that, that's a, another way of doing it. So there are many different ways of doing it. It's written in straightforward English, easy to understand, uh, and I hope 
it will be of some use and value to anyone who actually chooses, chooses to read it. Riaz, it's a great book. Thank you for your time today. I've enjoyed reading the book. I've commended it to others. You can get it here in Edinburgh, Faith Mission Bookshop in Gilmore oh, Road. Yeah. You can get it in Mound Books, uh, which is here, part of our office complex uh, on the Mound in Edinburgh. You can get it on Amazon very, very simply, and we really recommend it to you. Riaz, thank you for being here. Uh, oh, no, listeners. Thank you for me. It's just wonderful. Listeners, viewers, thank you for joining us and we look forward to giving you a few more weeks yet of quality podcasts talking to interesting people. Thank you. Blessings. Thank you.